Well, good afternoon, everybody. So good to see all of you out there. Uh, especially want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time. Add my welcome to Jonathan's from earlier and, and do ask you to stick around after our time together this afternoon so that we can get to know you a little bit and maybe begin to answer questions you may have about Jesus or questions you may have about what we're going to do now, which is spend the next bit of time together walking verse by verse through part of what we believe God has said to us in an ancient book written by a man named Luke. I want to invite you guys to turn now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, where we'll be considering the next in a series of parables that Jesus used to teach people about what his kingdom means and what it looks like to belong to it. I want to ask you a question while you turn. What do you want from life? What's your life for? What would make it meaningful, worthwhile? And if you have an answer to that question, I wonder what would it take for you to get there? I acknowledge these aren't questions we often have time to think much about, especially when our horizon doesn't stretch much beyond coronavirus or when kids will get back to school or the next exam you've got to prep for, or the next leg of your training that you've still got to nail down. We don't often have the space that we would need to do questions like this justice. But even when most of us aren't able to answer these questions in our thoughts or in our words, we do actually answer them. Every day we answer them in our hearts and in our behaviors. These questions are so important. And because it can be difficult to give a straight answer, even to ourselves, it helps us to have certain benchmarks, certain clues, certain visible signs we can recognize and look to for what's actually going on in our hearts, where we answer these questions every single day, where we, where we see what we, what we really believe makes life worthwhile and secure. And this afternoon, the parable we're going to look at is a parable meant to give us one of these benchmarks, one of these visible signs, something we can look for in our own life to understand what's going on at the deepest levels of who we are. This parable focuses on one of the Bible's most common and useful signs of what's going on inside you, of what you really want out of life, which is to say this is a parable that talks to us about money or possessions or stuff Whatever the, whatever the label you might want to apply to it. The Bible's perspective on our stuff, on our wealth, isn't what you might expect. It's got a very particular balance to it. Some in the history of the church have emphasized the danger of, of money or wealth to our spiritual health. And that's definitely a theme in the Bible. Some Christians, because that's a clear theme in the Bible, have, have elevated things like poverty that you choose for yourself in order to avoid doing evil with your money, a kind of asceticism that says no to even good things in life as the path to something deeper and higher. Others, especially today, on the far other extreme, highlight parts of the Bible that make it seem in isolation as if God's intent is to bless everyone that he truly loves with visible wealth that, that no one can deny, as if what it looks like to be in a good place with God is to have everything you might dream of out of life. The reality is, in the big picture, if we avoid just cherry-picking the passages of the Bible that suit our, our personal preferences, the perspective that we get is, is, is neither of these, of these big polarized extremes on either side. 
What matters most for the broad perspective of the Bible and what we're going to see in this parable this afternoon is not how much money you have or don't have, but what your money is to you. What matters to the Bible is how you relate to your money because how you relate to your money, to your wealth, is a clear window into how you relate to God. The most important question I want to ask you is who is God to what you want from life? And that's the question this text is going to help us to answer. Maybe with a lens we've never even applied to our own lives. I want to begin by reading the parable. It begins in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, and carries to verse 21. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. I'm going to pick up again in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Friends, this is God's word to us this afternoon. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Like so many other parables, even the ones we've seen so far in our series, this one and the explanation that comes after it in the verses Jonathan read earlier in our service is meant to provide us with two ways to be. A contrast between what not to be, the way of foolishness, and what to be, the way of freedom. And in this case, the key is verse 21, where we've just concluded. Jesus gives us two choices. You can lay up treasure for yourself, or you can be rich toward God. Clearly, what he wants for us is to be rich toward God. So that means what we want for ourselves out of these minutes we have together is a clear view of what it would mean to be rich toward God. What is he talking about when he says that? And we're going to follow the contrast. We're going to use the parable to hold up a kind of mirror to ourselves, to look for ourselves in the, in the profile of this rich fool, asking the first question, are you rich toward self as he was? And then we're going to pull from verses 22 to 34 to see the positive contrast that Jesus gives there. Then we'll ask of ourselves, are you rich toward God? So two questions this afternoon. Are you rich toward self or are you rich toward God? Let's take the first one. The parable begins with what you might call a really good problem to have. A rich man's land yields a plentiful harvest, even more than he was expecting. For all we know, that's because this guy did a good job. There's no hint that this success was somehow dishonest. 
no sense that it was based on any sort of exploitation of others. It just seems like this is a guy who's good at what he does. And like any gifted entrepreneur, he sets about solving the logistical problems that come with success. He's scaling up right away. Verses 17 and 18. Where am I going to put all this, all this food, this grain? I have nowhere to store my crops. So far, the story actually seems very innocuous. You might even see this as God's blessing on this man's life. You, you might see the steps that he takes to solve this problem of too much grain as even more evidence of his wisdom. You might use terms like good stewardship to explain it. This planning and conservation and investment. In fact, there's a way to see what he's doing here in, through the lens that Proverbs gives to us. Proverbs, a book of wisdom in the Old Testament that just shows the, the cause and effect between careful, deliberate thinking and, and good outcomes. Normally, when you're wise, good things happen. We might be tempted to celebrate this man and what he's done so far. But wisdom is far from what's going on here. The key verse to see what's going on in this man's heart, the verse that helps us raise the mirror to ourselves is verse 19. I will say to my soul, this rich man thinks to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I wanna give you a few questions that you can use to determine whether or not you're rich towards self. Here's the first one. Does your comfort come from what you have? Does your comfort, and I don't mean like physical comfort, like the soft chairs you're sitting on now, but, but existential comfort, a comfort in life, a comfort with where you are, where you stand, does that come for you from what you have? If so, it could show that in your heart you're self-reliant, and that's a dangerous place to be. This rich man's comfort clearly comes from what he can see, from what his hands have stored up in barns that he built for himself. To handle future needs, he's confident he can now cover. He's looking ahead. You've got this. For many years, you have what you need. Just relax. His comfort rests on what he can see, and in this case, in what he believes he has provided. In other words, this guy trusts himself. One of the most important things to notice about this story, something that, that the New Testament scholars I read for help on this, all pointed to, is the way this man puts himself at the center of all of it. Did you, did you notice this feature? The way this story is told? All the, all the pronouns in verses 17 to 19, they're all first person pronouns. Look, He's thinking to himself here, right? This is a story of one involving one. He says, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, you can take it from there. Who's missing here? God is missing here. Can you see the audacity in that? Let's give him the credit for having bought the seeds that were sown in the field. 
made a wise decision, bought seeds that were provided by a reliable supplier that actually did yield a harvest. Let's give him credit for that. Let's assume he, he also timed the seasons properly and put the seed into the ground at the right time. Let's give him credit for that. I, I did something much like this over the weekend. I went, I bought my grass seed. I even got an aerator this time and put a bunch of holes in the ground to help get the right oxygen to this seed. I, I spread all the seed out there. I did my part. Did I create this seed, though? No, the seed was already there. Did I design or implement the organic process by which a seed sprouts into a plant? I can't even describe that to you, much less design it or sustain it. What control do I have over the temperature in which this seed will sprout, other than hoping for the best and planting at roughly the right time? I did not send the rain that has fallen at precisely the right time to make sure that this seed gets the nourishment that it needs in these critical early days. I didn't create the land that my home sits on. I I can't sustain the laws that regulate it. And every breath that I took from the beginning to the end of that process is not a breath I produced, but a breath that I freely received. So for this man. And yet he has the audacity to stand back, look at what's happened, and talk about my barns and my crops and my grain and my goods and ultimately even my soul. If the story seemed like a story of wise stewardship, reaping its just reward, in other words, now we know better. Because God is completely absent in what this man sees and where his comfort in life comes from. There's no gratitude for what God has given. There's no question about what this use of the wealth might, 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 might seem, how it might seem to God, whether it pleases him or not. And this absence, this, this just colossal, unthinkable oversight is what makes this man not wise but a fool. Because friends, at the very beginning of Proverbs, the same book that tells us when you make wise decisions, good things come from it, we're told that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you don't account for him, what you're doing isn't wise. If you don't recognize the difference between God and yourself, The scriptures say, you're a fool. So what about you? I wonder, friends, do you feel confident about your immediate future? If so, why? And where does God fit in? I'm not trying to discourage you from planning. It's not necessarily wrong to plan. It can be really good stewardship to plan. I'm trying to warn you to be careful about how much planning can shield sinful self-reliance on wealth. Where you find comfort could reveal whether you're rich towards self rather than toward God. Does your comfort come from what you have? Here's another question to ask. Are you self-indulgent with what you have? It shouldn't surprise us that since God is missing in his account, this man's account of where his wealth came from, since he just sees that through these, this myopic lens where it's just all about him, 
it, it shouldn't surprise us that God is also missing in how he decides what to do with this wealth. He thinks to himself about what to do. The plan he comes up with is a plan to effectively hoard it all, right? And once it's settled, he tells himself to go eat and drink and be merry. This is a picture of a man who's self-isolated, who's making decisions that lead to gasp, self-indulgent behavior. So when you assume that you're responsible for what you have, it makes sense that you do whatever you want with what you have. It also shouldn't surprise us, friends, that since God is absent, this man's neighbors are too. Not seeing that it was God who gave him everything he had, he doesn't give a thought to the claim that others might have on what's his. Presumably those original barns that he had were working fine. When they were full, he had what he needed for the year. Can assume that, I think, by the fact that this is the barns that he had. So now he's got more than those barns can hold. He could have seen this windfall as God's intent to provide through him for others. That would have been a different sort of problem to solve. How can I best distribute this to those who need it? But no, 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 he sees this wealth as his. He earned it. He deserves a chance to do with it whatever he wants. No one gets to tell him what to do with what's his. He builds bigger barns to maximize the impact of this new wealth on his life. Does that sound as familiar to you as it does to me? Isn't it amazing how quickly our standards change? Our sense of need or propriety rising to meet the expanded income. I know many of you are still in the training phase of your lives. You're going to have to take my word for this, but you're going to need to hear this from one who's now learning. As I am now in, in whatever stage of life I'm in, it has amazed me to watch my own sense of what's reasonable and necessary grow with the amount of money I have at my disposal. How simple, how straightforward, how innocuous that expansion seems. I wonder if you can relate to that. How your accounts, your houses, your cars, your wardrobes, your vacations, all of them are just kind of can, can, can turn up just like barns that expand to make sure you're getting the most, you're getting the most out of your growing resources. And when this is how we relate to our wealth, our reference point is never God and what pleases him. It's never our neighbors and what they might need, but tends to be others around us, what's normal for them, how we might like to follow them. When you're deciding what to do with what you have, as you're evaluating that next possible purchase, where is God? Where's your neighbor? Are you self-indulgent with what you have? Here's a final question to ask to help you know if you're rich towards self. Does your perspective extend beyond this life? In verse 20, this man's self-reliant, self-indulgent perspective on his life is exposed for the fantasy that it is. This man meets God. And he learns that his horizon didn't extend nearly far enough. 
At this point, his rest was tied to the many years he thought he had left and to the ample goods he knew he could draw from to cover those years. He should have been focused on the certainty of his death and of the judgment that would follow it. Look at verse 20. God said to him, just as he sits back to eat, drink, and be merry, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Friends, you might have more possessions now or in time than you could have ever imagined. This wealth wealth may give you the chance to enjoy pretty much anything you might want to enjoy. But no matter what you amass for yourself and no matter what you choose to do with it, nothing will change the central truth that you must account for. I ask you to do so tonight. You cannot protect your possessions. And your possessions cannot protect you. You cannot protect your possessions. Nothing you have is yours to keep. Everybody loses everything in time because as this man discovers in this story, a moment will come when your life is required of you. When this life will end and nothing you may accomplish and nothing you may acquire can stop that from happening. You can't protect the things that you have and they can't protect you either. One day, when your life ends, you will give an account to God for how you've used the resources that he entrusted to you. Resources that ultimately belong to him. Many parables are hypotheticals. Stories that Jesus creates to help us understand his point. This situation is not hypothetical. One day all of us will stand before him, the God who gave us every breath we've ever taken, the God who is the only reason we live. And whether or not up until that point we have ever accounted for him, and the way we've lived our lives and the choices that we've made. On that day, we will give an account to him. And we will learn that he has perfectly accounted for us. He has seen all things. Nothing is hidden from him. And when we stand before him on that day, nothing that we own will protect us. The only way to stand before him on that day and survive is to stand before him in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Recognizing we are poor, if not in pocketbook, poor in spirit. That we have nothing to offer him, no matter how successful we may be. That can account for the ways we have failed to give him the glory that is his right. And our only hope, friend, your only hope on that day is Jesus, who will stand for him if you'll turn and repent. He loves to receive sinners. 
All you have to drop is the pretense that you don't need him. The issue, friends, when it comes to wealth is not how much your harvest yields, but what your harvest is to you. The issue, as another pastor has put it, is not mainly whether you get your fair share, as that, that, that original question asker put it to Jesus, demanding his inheritance. The issue is not whether you get what's coming to you. The issue is whether wanting it so much will destroy you. What do you want from life? Are you rich towards self? I now want to ask you another question. This one comes not from the parable itself. This one comes from the way Jesus extends the teaching that he uses the parable to elaborate on. He extends this teaching in the verses that come after the parable, verse 22 to 34. And I just want to draw from, without taking time to read all of them, knowing Jonathan's read most of this passage already. I want to draw out for you a couple of things to help you understand what Jesus means when he calls us to be rich toward God. Are we? How would we know? That's where Jesus goes in these verses. I want to give you quickly three questions to ask of yourself. Are you rich toward God? That's the big question. Here's three questions to ask of yourself to figure out the answer. Friend, do you trust God's provision? That's the first. Just after he's warned them not to be that guy, he says to his disciples in verse 22, therefore, in drawing a conclusion from what I've just told you through this parable, therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat and, the body, and what you're going to put on your body. For the life, your life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Don't be anxious. Think of the ravens, he says, verse 24. They don't stress. They don't store up barns full of seed. Still talking about the same thing he was talking about in this parable. They don't store up in barns like this rich fool did. They just live and let live. They're not working a master five or 15 or 50 year plan. And yet he says God feeds them. And how much more, of how much more value are you than the birds? He says to think about the lilies of the field. They're gorgeous. They don't lift a finger to produce these brilliant colors. Even Solomon, with all of his resources at his disposal, couldn't match what these lilies look like for a day. They're just here for a day, and then the next day they're tender for a fire. How much more will the God who clothes them clothe you, Jesus says. So don't be worried. And in verse 30, he delivers his point. All the nations of the world seek after these things. Your father knows you need them. See the contrast there? When he's talking about the nations of the world, he has in mind specifically pagans. Not a pejorative term for him, a term for another way to see the world. A way to see it as contained to, to, to this, to what we can see and touch and eat. This world, as we know it, is all there is for the pagan. And in this world, you're on your own. There are gods in this world that very much belong here who have power that they can use to help you get what you're hoping for. If you pay them off in the correct way, offer the right sacrifices at the right time in the right way, then they will help you get what you want. But it's on you to know what you need and it's on you to produce it. That's the pagan mindset Jesus is speaking about. They seek after what they're gonna eat and what they're gonna drink and what they're gonna put on their bodies. They have to. 
This world is all that there is, and they're on their own. They'll only go as far as their legs can carry them. Of course, they seek after these things. But Jesus says to them, your father knows that you need them. Your father doesn't wait for you to tell him what to give you. He doesn't hold back until you pay him off in just the right way. He doesn't put the power and the responsibility on your shoulders because he's your father. See, friends, pagan comfort depends on what belongs to you. You can only rest when you see you've already got it, when you can bank it, when it's right there in front of you to see and to touch. That's where the pagan's comfort comes from. But a Christian's comfort depends on who you belong to. The pagan rich man says to his soul, you did it. You can rest for a while now. You got plenty. The Christian says to her soul, he's got this. He's your father. It's his world. And he loves you. You can tell, friend, if you're rich toward God by how you comfort your soul when you're stressed. What do you say to yourself? I've got plenty to last at least a few years. I don't have enough. I've got to produce. I have a father. He knows what I need. I can trust him. Do you trust God's provision? Are you generous towards others? That's the next one. Verse 33 offers a, another sign of richness toward God, of what it is to, to be Godward in your posture towards your stuff. I love this verse because of how it, how it provides the mirror opposite of the rich man's posture in the parable. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Right here in the middle of this long talk about your father who knows what you need and you don't have to be like the pagans. You have to live in the world as if you're only gonna get as far as you can carry yourself. Your father's got this. So you sell your stuff and give it to the needy. It reminds me of the warning with which all this began. Jesus was speaking to this man who wanted to make sure he was gonna get his. Jesus, tell this guy to give me my part of the inheritance. And Jesus says, essentially, you're asking the wrong question. What you need to be focused on is the covetousness in your heart that's making you so concerned that you get what's yours. See, covetousness and greed show a poverty towards God, a hoarding of what you have and an envy of what you don't. And whether you hoard and enjoy or envy and covet, either way, how are you measuring your life? By your possessions. You're saying essentially, verse 15, life consists in the abundance of possessions. And when that's how you see the world, when the world is ultimate, then other people are always going to look like competition. But when you're rich toward God, when you trust the one who watches and provides more than you trust the food and the clothing and the house that you've got right in front of you, when you want him for who he is and for what he's promised, well, friends, God is inexhaustible. He, he just won't run out. And so you're you're not at risk in having to share him. He's just as available to you as he is to me and to anyone else. He's no more or less certain to provide for me if I hold on to what I have or give it away. So when my heart treasures him, 
than other people rather than competition who, who I've got to edge out to make sure I maximize what I've got become objects of generosity, love, joyful, cheerful giving. Generosity shows us where our heart is, in other words. It shows us what we treasure. So are you generous toward others? And finally, do you love God's kingdom? Do you love God's kingdom? This whole section is littered with Jesus calling on his disciples to prioritize the world he's promised to give them over this world that is passing away. In fact, the command to sell your possessions and give to the needy comes immediately after the command to seek his kingdom and trust that all these things will be added to you. Friends, those go hand in hand. See, when, when you become a Christian, you stake your hope, your whole claim, your life and all that it represents to a world that is coming but not here yet. Your heart belongs there to what he's promised to do in time. The pagans stress about this world because this world is all there is. They have to make the most of it now. Jesus asks, is not life more than food and clothing and abundance of possessions? And the pagan hearers would have to say, no, actually it, it isn't. This is all there is. It's now or never. And what Jesus is warning his disciples against is a kind of functional paganism where we live in this world as if we don't have a father that we can trust, as if what he's promised us isn't more glorious than anything we can experience now, as if we do have to hoard rather than give because there's only so much to go around and we must make sure we get ours. Jesus doesn't want a functional paganism for us because he knows that's bondage and he's died to set us free. Instead, he calls us to seek God's kingdom a kingdom beyond the horizons of your next meal or your 401k or your vacation home, beyond the horizons even, friends, of death itself, the death you might otherwise try to avoid or deny. And here's the really beautiful thing. If you will set your heart on this kingdom, when you love what he's promised, you have no reason to fear because it is his good pleasure to give it to you. Verse 32, fear not little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Not to give you a shot at it. It is not for your father's amusement that you try your best and see what happens. He's not tight-fisted with what he has to offer. He's not waiting on the magic word or the successful attempt. It is your father's good pleasure to give it to you. It's his good pleasure to give it to you. So friends, when your heart's treasure is the kingdom he's promised, You have no reason to be anxious. Security comes from knowing that what you want most 
what you most love, your Father wants to give you. And that's the promise of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to believe and to love this promise. And we pray that you would protect us from what in us continues to love the things of this world more than the one who stands behind every good gift we've ever received. We pray for eyes to see through this parable and for confidence and joy coming out of it because we trust in Christ and not in ourselves. And we pray in his name, amen.